Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you, that the wind didn't carry you away yesterday. We have in our front yard a uh, almost two-dimensional, um, kind of like a yard sign material, plasticky. It doesn't look cheap, but it is kind of cheap, a uh, manger scene. And uh, so you just t- take two or three little uh, PVC pipes and stick them in the ground and then set this thing in it and it stands there and you shine a light on it at night and it looks real nice and impressive when you're looking at it in the evening. And I came out there yesterday morning and uh, Mary and Joseph were doing this. <laughs> and, uh, but I said, all right, Jesus is still hanging in there. He's all right. He's, he's good. He's still right there where he's supposed to be. So glad you all are still where you're supposed to be as well. Um, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 contains the key verse we're going to look at today. We're going to cover the entirety of chapter 7 and the first 10 verses of chapter 8. I know what the bulletin says, but I'm going a little bit broader than that because I want to cover a couple of things that are related to the text that I was assigned. So we're going to start at 7-1 and go through 8-10. But all I want to look at right now with you is our key verse. I'm going to read that aloud which is verse 14, if you'll look with me and just uh, follow along as I read this to us this morning. Chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather this morning, we are so grateful for the opportunity to open up your word And to get a glimpse, another glimpse of your glory. And Father, it is my prayer as your servant in this role this morning that you would just help me to get out of the way and to allow your word to speak. Father, may I just simply make it clear and may your Holy Spirit do a work in all of us that you would visit us even now in this place, Father. These people that are gathered here in the confines of this sanctuary, as, those, as well as those who are gathered at home and other places, Father, may you come in with us and shape and change us as a result of our having opened up your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, class, you know that the uh, name that I read off to you just now at the end of that key verse, Emmanuel, means what? God with us, and God with us is part of our big idea. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you there'll be nothing on the screen today, Um, so I'm just going to encourage you to write notes as we go along, and this is the big idea. I would write this one down if I were you. God with us means salvation and security for the believer. I'll say that again. God with us means salvation and security for for the believer. Now, before we jump into Isaiah 7, I want to give us a good sense, a good background of the state of Judah at this time. And so I want to encourage you to go back to chapter 1 with me. And I'm just going to read chapter 1 in its entirety. And um, I'm reading chapter 1 because it kind of gives an overview, if you will, of the entire book of Isaiah and the status of things at that time. So if you'll follow along with me, Isaiah chapter 1 The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, 
concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared up and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now. And let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a harlot, she who was full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away 
or as a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tender, his work also like a spark. Thus they shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. Now I'll let you draw what parallels you see in that text regarding Judah in that day and us in our day. But I want to go back and think about the fact that in chapter 1, what we see there is God condemning his people for the guilt of their many sins. And what we see in chapter 7, if you'll come back to chapter 7 with me now, is some of the deserved consequences of those sins. So we're going to pick up with chapter 7, verse 1. And if you will, we're just going to kind of go through a verse at a time, and I'll break down anything as we go along that we need. But let's look at verse 1 together. Now, it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. So this is now the third king of Judah that Isaiah has had the privilege of ministering in their time frame. It came about in the days of Ahaz, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not conquer it. Now I want to give you the opportunity. Many of you might take advantage of this. Feel free to. 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles 28. If you were to write those references down and go back to them later, I'll say that one more time in case you want to make a note of it. 2 Kings 16, 2 Chronicles 28 carry a lot more insights into Ahaz and to the war that's going to be going on between himself and these other nations. But let me just give you a brief overview of what's going on, okay? Ahaz became king of Judah at age 20, and he did not do what was right in God's sight. He was one of the evil kings. He worshiped other gods, especially if doing so served his purposes. And Aram and Israel, that is the ten northern tribes of Israel, had allied with each other, these two nations, and came and to fight against Judah. Aram carried many Judeans away to Damascus, while Israel on their part, slaughtered many Judeans. Now, this is brother fighting against brother, you understand, including some of the key leaders of Judah and carrying many others off for a short time. They weren't the only nations, though. Edom and Philistia also invaded parts of Judah. So what was the solution, according to King Ahaz? He decided, instead of going to God and confessing sin and praying to him, that he would instead call on help from the king of Assyria. Now, here's another reference you can write down sometime if you want to look in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 26 through 30 for a description of the army of Assyria. And you will see there, those were some bad dudes. Okay? And so Ahaz thinks, okay, let me call on them for some help. So he reaches out to the king of Assyria. And... Second Chronicles also tells us this was all the Lord's doing, of course. He's sovereign over this whole work that's going on. But instead of providing help, the king of Assyria comes in and brings more trouble. And things turn out worse than what were, they were already were. Ahaz tries to pay the Assyrian king off using treasure from the temple as well as treasure from his house. And that didn't work. That just turned into a vassal kind of system. He's just paying him off all the time. And so things just got worse from there. And that is the context that we see here in chapter 7, verse 1. So keep all that in mind as we go through. Now, for those of you taking notes, I have five headings that I'm going to kind of just give as a summary of the text today. So again, we're going to start in chapter one. I mean, chapter 7, verse 1, go through chapter 8, verse 10, and I've got five headings. If you want to write these down, they might help prove to you later as you go back through and review um, kind of the overall 
uh, overview of the text, rather. So the first heading would be fighting and fear. And we see this in the first two verses of chapter 7. Fighting and fear. I already read verse 1. At the end of that verse, I want to point out the phrase, they could not conquer it. And I'm left with the question, why? And we see the answer somewhat in verse 2. It was reported to the house of David. And I want to pause right there and draw attention to the fact that a long time before that, God had made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7.16. And it says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God never breaks a promise. He is a covenant-keeping God. And when it says that they could not conquer it, the main reason why is because God is keeping covenant. And so it was reported to the house of David in verse 2, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim. That's another phrase for Israel, the northern tribes. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. So we have fighting and fear. Next heading, if you want to write this one down, sovereignty and certainty. Sovereignty and certainty. And this would be for verses 3 through 9. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Sheer Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. I'm going to pause here and point out Isaiah's first son, We're going to see his second one come later in our text today. His first son, translated, the name means a remnant will return. Now just imagine naming one of your children, a remnant will return. This is Isaiah. You recall chapter 6, he had the vision of the Lord. And that transformed Isaiah And he was willing to go and to say whatever it was that God told him to say. And he saw his own children as a part of the legacy of the Lord. And he was willing to name them according to what the Lord wanted him to be named. And so this child is a remnant shall return. And God says, go and stand before the king. And I want you to notice in verse 3, God knows exactly where the king is. Look at the detail of the location in verse 3. This place, in verse 3, is a significant place in the history of Judah. Another time, you can go to chapter 36, and you'll see the exact place mentioned again with another king, Hezekiah. And in the case of both Ahaz and Hezekiah, it was at this place, this location, at that fuller's field, that they came to a crisis of faith. They were faced with enemies who were looking to attack them. And each one of them had to make a decision as to who they were going to put their trust in and what they were going to do. And so this is where we are in verse 3 of chapter 7 with Ahaz. And Isaiah comes and he says in verse 4, Take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramelia. Because Aram, with Ephraim and the son of Ramelia, has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabeel as a king in the midst of it. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. God says through Isaiah, Don't worry about what those two say. 
Look at how he refers to them. These stubs. These stumps. They're nothing compared to the God of all eternity. Don't worry about them. It's not going to happen. Now, just listen to the authority with which God speaks in that verse 7 and consider the reality of that authority. It reminds me of um, Romans 13.1. Romans 13.1 says, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, that's talking about earthly rulers. And if you'll notice, if you go on in verse 8, God says, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And in verse 9, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remelia. And I take that reading to be like God saying, I've appointed him the king of there, and him the king of there, and you the king of here. And no matter what they do, I'm still God, you're still going to be here. And this place will be here. Don't worry about what they say. Look at the last part of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is a fascinating sort of pivotal verse here in this text because this is a time when faith is introduced as being key to being in God's good graces and being a key to having God with us, which is what our whole text is about today, right? Emmanuel, God with us. God says, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You'll not be established. You will not be with me. I will not be with you. It reminds me of, uh, it's kind of like a negative version of what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. It's kind of like the antithesis of that, isn't it? Well, we come to our next heading, friends, if you're taking notes. Promises and presence in verses 10 through 16. Promises and presence. Look at verse 11. This is Isaiah still talking on behalf of the Lord to Ahaz. And he tells him to ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. I can see, Ahaz, that you're over here shaking like one of the trees because Israel's at your back door threatening you. Okay. Ask for a sign. Make it as high as the heavens or as deep as Sheol. And what does Ahaz reply in verse 12? I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. That's fascinating because he's been testing the Lord his whole kingdom, his whole kingship. Okay? He's done all kinds of evil against God. And I don't know if at this point in his life he's finally face to face and maybe he realizes, I don't want to keep going. Or if it's a feigned thing and he's just putting on for Isaiah. But regardless, one way or the other, he says, I'm not going to test the Lord. And Isaiah, on behalf of the Lord, goes on in verse 13 and says, Listen now, O house of David. He called him that again. He's reminding him of his heritage, this heritage of faith. He's reminding him of the promise God had made to David. Listen, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? And then we come to our key verse. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You're not going to ask for one. I'm going to give you one anyway. And here it is. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Signs point to a greater event. And authenticate the prophet's message. That's what they were for. 
So you look throughout scripture and you see when God gives a sign, it's to authenticate a word that has been spoken on his behalf. God here in Isaiah 7, 14 does something marvelous. This prophecy has sort of a, a two-fold application, the immediate and the future. And he's giving Ahaz here a sign that says, I'm going to show you that I'm going to protect this land. I'm going to keep my covenant with Judah. But he's also giving us a promised Messiah in this verse. One who will secure for us an eternity in heaven with the Lord forever and ever. A final deliverance for his people through the one born of the virgin to come one day. And we'll see that at the end of our message today. We'll come back to that. But for now, let's come back to this time frame and let's continue. Verses 15 and 16 are some of the most controversial verses, the most widely debated verses uh, in terms of prophecy that you can find. I, I researched in preparation for this message and you find lots of people arguing over what this Emmanuel, who this Emmanuel is at this day and time for Ahaz. And I'll tell you in a moment what I think, but let me just go ahead and point out what I see here in these two verses, okay? He, Emmanuel, will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So God, through Isaiah, is saying to Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign. And before that boy gets old enough to be able to refuse evil and choose good, what age is that? Not exact. God's purposely not giving him an exact date, but he's giving him a time frame. It's not going to be that long. The, the land whose two kings you, you're afraid of, it's going to be abandoned. That's the sign. We'll come back to that in just a little bit, but I want to point out that this sign came true. Another reference for you to write down and look up later is 2 Kings 15, 29 and 2 Kings 16, 9. And if you read there, you'll see that the king of Assyria, whose name at that time, uh, the king of Assyria was Tiglath-Pileser. I like to call him TP. And much like toilet paper, he rolled. When he, when he came through a place, I mean, it was, it was devastation. And if you go back and read those verses, you'll see that he did exactly that. He ravaged Syria, which was Aram, and captured its capital, Damascus. Uh, he puts resin to death uh, and captured all kinds of places uh, along Israel as well. So uh, that, tr that comes true. That prophecy does come true just a few years after this prophecy was made. Okay? But let's keep going on in our text because God is not done conversing with Ahaz. He's not done... Uh, with his doling out of punishment, as it were. He's not just going to punish Aram and Israel for coming up against Judah because Judah themselves deserve punishment. So he goes on and says in 17, the Lord will bring on you, Ahaz, and on your people, that is Judah, on your father's house, such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah. Now that was a cataclysmic event in the history of the life of the nation of Israel when the northern and the southern kingdoms divided. This would have been an event that would have been unparalleled up to that time. And he says, it's going to be so bad, it's going to be like that. And that is going to come in the person of, at the end of verse 17, the king of Assyria. He's going to come to you too, Judah. But look how the Lord is in control of the whole thing. 
It's not the king of Syria doing it in his own might and his own strength, but rather he's acting as an agent on behalf of the Lord God Almighty. In that day, the Lord, verse 18, will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest parts of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliffs, on the thorn bushes, and on the watering places. Just think, this is everywhere. It reminds me of the plague of locusts. Remember how they came and there was nothing green left. I mean, they were all over the place. That's what's described here as far as how it's going to feel like to Judah when the king of Assyria comes riding in with his army. And in verse 20, And that day the Lord will shave with a razor, hired from the regions beyond the Euphrates River, that is the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, it will also remove the beard. He's going to bring you shame as well as destruction. It's going to be bad. Now we come again to the curds and honey that was referenced in verse 15. Now we see it in verse 21 and 22. In that day, a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep. Why? Because that's some of the few things that can remain alive with such little vegetation to eat. And because of the abundance of the milk produced. Why is there abundance? This is not a good time in Judah. There's an abundance because there's so few people left. Less mouths to feed, a little easier to do. A cow, two sheep can take care of what needs to be done. But much like manna in the wilderness, this is what you got to eat. Curds, cottage cheese, and honey. Now, that sounds all right to us today who probably had a well-rounded breakfast or at least a well-rounded supper last night. But imagine eating that for lunch and supper. And the next day, breakfast, lunch, and supper. And the next day, and the next day, and then that's all you have. Well, you could kill the cow and sheep, but then what are you going to eat after that? It's bad, okay? Look at the last part of the chapter. Briars and thorns are written three times in those three verses. The vegetation is gone. The land that used to could be cultivated, it's wasteland. No good for anything anymore. That's the state of affairs for Judah. And so in this heading, I would label this one, verses 17 through 25, if you're taking notes, trials and tribulations. Trials and tribulations, that's what they're experiencing right here. The key thing I want you to see out of that text, though, is that the Lord is directing this entire process. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart... Is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. So he's calling the king of Assyria and the king of Egypt and all these other kings around to come and do this work on his behalf. Why? Back to chapter 1 where we started. Because the children of Israel have rebelled against God. They have denied him and his authority. So now the last heading for the morning Isaiah 8, 1 through 10, I would label neck deep, neck deep, but not done. Neck deep, but not done. And we'll see why in just a moment. Verse 1 through 3, then the Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters. And then the letters translated for us in English means swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. 
And I will take to myself, this is God talking, faithful witnesses. And he calls these two, Uriah and Zechariah, to be witnesses of what's happened here. And so he tells Isaiah, write that down on a tablet. Now, tablets were not superfluous in that day, so this is an important deal. I want you to write this down. Historical document. I'm predicting something. Well, he's not predicting. He's foretelling. I'm foretelling something that's going to happen. So then verse 3, Isaiah approaches the prophetess, his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. So you're the big brother, right? And your name is a remnant shall return. And you're thinking, I think I came out on the better end of that deal. Here's son number two. This is the name son number two gets. And look at verse 4. Compare verse 4 with verse 16 of the previous chapter. For before the boy knows how to cry out, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Israel. The period of time here for a child to be able to call out, My father or my mother is shorter than that of knowing to refuse evil and to choose good. And if I take that, and I also put the fact that the difference in time between the two predictions and the similarity in language and the proximity of the two verses, I personally believe that Isaiah's second son is the first Emmanuel mentioned in Isaiah 7, 14. Now, he's not the main Emmanuel. We know that. And we're going to get there in just a moment. But I think he's the first one. Scholars would disagree with me. I'm not 100% positive. Take that with a grain of salt. Do your own research. That's what I think. Regardless, whoever the first Emmanuel is, the prophecy still stands, and we know by history it came true. The king of Assyria comes in and wipes out those two lands and then turns his face towards Judah. I'm going to go on real quick just because of time. And Oh, let me, let me read, though, uh, the next few verses because they are critical. Okay? The description here that the Lord gives of what it's going to be like when the Assyrian king comes through Judah. This is where I get neck deep from. Verse 6. Inasmuch as these people have rejected, talking about Judah, these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shaloah. That would be one of the streams there. And rejoice in Rezin, the son of Ramel, and the son of Ramalia, the two kings that were mentioned. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates. And he's referring to, and he says it in the next phrase, the king of Assyria. So when he says the Euphrates, that's sort of like a, a, a synonym, if you will, for the king of Assyria in all his glory. And the Euphrates River will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. And it will overflow and pass through and will reach even to the neck. But it doesn't go up to the head. It stops here. Now imagine yourself being immersed in a pool or a river. A body of water where the water is up to here. Uh, when I was a little kid, my next door neighbor had a swimming pool. And I don't know at what age I reached the point where I could get neck deep in the shallow end of the pool. But whenever that day came, I remember thinking, I'm king of the world. 
check it out. I don't have to hold the side of the rail anymore and do like this, right? I can walk flat-footed on the ground, and it's right here, and I'm all right. Now, of course, I had the good sense not to walk in the deep end, but as long as I stayed up there on the shallow end, God says, it's going to be neck deep. And that proved true too. You can look in your history book, go into uh, chapter 36 and keep reading of Isaiah. And you're going to see when the Assyrian comes up against uh, Judah. And what you'll see there is it, it's, it's bad. It's destruction and it's ravaging and it's all the way up to Jerusalem. He doesn't take the city of Jerusalem. Thus, neck deep, but not done. But I want you to notice the context. He uses the phrase Emmanuel there again in the verse 8. And this is a hard read. I'm going to tell you again. This is another one of those debatable texts. Um, scholars disagree as to what that Emmanuel is referring to. Personally, I think he's referring to Judah. They're the ones who would say God is with us. And that fits the context then in the next two verses. Let's look at the next two verses, 9 and 10. And then I'm going to come to a conclusion here pretty quick, okay? Be broken, O peoples. This is, this is now being spoken to those outside nations, okay? Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. And give ear, all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves and be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Anytime something's spoken twice, you know that it's for emphasis' sake. Verse 10, devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Sounds a lot like when we were looking at what God was telling Ahaz in chapter 7. Don't be afraid of these guys around you, for I'm here. God is with us. Okay, let's go back to our key verse. Verse 14 of chapter 7, and let's come to a conclusion here. I wanted to do all of that just to give you the context that this verse stands out like the midday sun in one of the darkest times in the nation of Judah. We take this verse out of context at Christmas time and we think, oh, isn't that nice? Emmanuel. And it is nice. But unless we see the depth of of the gloom and doom that was going on in the context of everything going on around, we miss the sheer beauty of the promise contained in Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. Tell me, class, I'm going to ask you three questions. Who's this promise from? The Lord himself, it says. This is from the one that Isaiah saw in the chapter right before who was seated on his throne at the death of King Uzziah, one of the greatest kings that had ever been in Judah. And the people probably were so wrought over, oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? And Isaiah says, no, 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 no. I see the real king. He's seated on the throne. He hasn't left. His kingdom will never end. This is the one who says, I'm giving you a promise. Did you know a promise is only as good as the one who gives it? I could write you a check 
Well, I can't because I don't have one in my pocket, but pretend I could write you a check today for a million dollars. Anybody think that check would cash? You've got to know the character of the one making the promise. And your decision is, am I going to trust him? Not so much the promise. Yes, the promise. But the faith is placed in the one who's making the promise. Class question number two. Who is this promise for? Isaiah seven fourteen. Who's it for? Immediately? It's for Ahaz. And Judah, isn't it? God is giving this promise from Isaiah to them directly, saying, don't worry about these guys around you. And essentially, I'm say, he's saying, I've got you. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't going to be bad times. There's going to be devastation. You're going to get some of what you deserve. And by the way, you deserve it. But I'm going to preserve a remnant. You're not done. Even if you get neck deep, You're not done. But who else is this promise for? This promise is for the church. I know that because of what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says. And all my Awana friends in the room will remember this verse. All scripture, including Isaiah 7, 14, is inspired by who? God. And beneficial For teaching, rebuke, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. You see, Isaiah 7.14 has two applications. We talked about that earlier. The immediate one for Ahaz and Judah, and the long-term one pointing to this promised Messiah. And we see that Messiah show up again. This same text in Matthew chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So she's a a virgin. And her husband, Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, now, wait a minute. I thought the prophecy was that he was going to be named Emmanuel. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. And then the quotation from Isaiah, Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Third question, class, what is this promise all about? God wanted to assure Judah of his presence and protection from Aram and Israel, yes. But God, again, in his marvelous, mysterious way, wants to assure the church of his presence and protection from a greater problem, the problem of sin and death. Go back to our big idea. If you didn't write it down before, write it down now. God with us means salvation and security for the believer. Do you have such an assurance this morning? 
I don't know if you've noticed, but I, I kind of feel like we live in a world full of fighting and fears. That was one of the headings, you remember? Context. Do you have the certainty in the sovereignty of the king of the universe? In a time of trials and tribulations, do you possess the promised presence of God? Do you have a confidence that even if you are neck deep in the onslaught of the enemy all around you, that God is with you and that you are not done? You see, you and I, we're standing at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the way to the fuller's field. Do you remember that verse we read in chapter 7, verse 3? I told you it was an important place in the context of the history of Judah because those two kings were confronted with a crisis of faith. Did you know that God does that? He puts people in a crisis of faith. He allows circumstances that are negative to come up against us in order to see where we're going to look and to whom we're going to put our faith and trust in. And that's exactly what he did with Ahaz. And that's exactly what he's doing with you and I this morning. You just heard the word of the Lord. You just heard one of the most beautiful promises in all of Scripture in Isaiah 7.14. A promise expressed in a person named Emmanuel. God with us. And now you are confronted with a crisis of faith and need to render an important decision. And I would suggest it's the most important decision you'll ever make. And here it is. Who will you trust to deliver you from the predicament of your sin? I'm going to close with three verses out of chapter 1, which we read at the beginning of our time together. And I'm going to invite you to allow the Holy Spirit to do a work that only He can do in convicting you of your sin and drawing you to the Lord Jesus Christ as the answer to the predicament of your sin. This is what God said through Isaiah in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken.